Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in our series of Empire Podcast Spoiler Specials. This is the last one of 2014. It is dedicated to Peter Jackson's The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies, the fitting conclusion to the saga that is The Lord of the Rings slash The Hobbit. Here today to discuss the film and its many twists and turns are three of Empire's biggest J.R. Tolkienites. Helen O'Hara. Hello. You have my sword. Dan Jolin. Well met, my friend. You have my axe. James Dyer. I'd meant to look up how to say good morning in the black speech of Mordor, but I got up late, so hello. <laughs> Fair enough. Seems good to me. Welcome, guys. Welcome, 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 welcome. Uh, before we start nattering away, as ever, uh, a quick note. If you haven't seen The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies, or indeed if you haven't seen any of the, uh, the Hobbit films or the Lord of the Rings films, go quickly and fail yourself of them and then come back here because we will be discussing spoilers uh, in great big detail third act and everything major deaths and everything have you gone have you come back it is all all in the book though it is all in the book yeah (laughs) the book which was written in 1937 yes there is a statute of limitations on spoilers I'm saying it's expired not according to Twitter there isn't (laughs) Thorin dies Thorin Um, dies Thorin dies Thorin (laughs) dies Thorin Thorin and Philly and Killy too oh yeah, this is Kill Philly Volume yeah. Volume Two. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't suffer from the Lord, the Return of the King syndrome, does it? It doesn't have too many endings. I think it's quite a fitting end to the, to the that saga. That was a relief, I think. I think <laughs> I can speak for everyone in the world uh, that it was nice that he went for a very sort of simple single conclusion to this, uh, which I think fits because it's a slightly less epic, more personal story, and I don't think you need a sort of multi-part sort of epic ending to go with it. That said, he does tie up a few of the loose ends uh, before he goes. So, you know, you have the speech between um, Thranduil and... Uh, uh, Legolas. <laughs> and Legolas. Oh, I love that bit. Uh, where, which is essentially a trailer for Fellowship of the Ring. Yes, I think we can all agree. It's, you must go and go find the, this young find. ranger. He is should, known as Strider. I will not tell you his marathon. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, so so there's a little bit of that, and uh, and the foreshadowing there, I could I think is is a little bit clunky, but but you, he doesn't spend too much time on that. There's a, a swift farewell to the dwarves standing in a doorway, and then it's back to the Shire. In I, to be fair, I think which is my one of my favourite parts of the film, which is the moment where you know Gandalf comes up to Bilbo and says, uh, you know, magic rings are not to be trifled with. Something like that, and, and he lies to him for the first time. This pure hobbit, this hobbit that has been uncorrupted by the dragon sickness, uncorrupted by the gold, by the Arkenstone, and he lies to the wizard. Mm. And then you have that moment, that wonderful moment back in the Shire when he's in, you know, in his little in bag end in his little bolt hole, and he he sort of fingers the ring slightly. Well, uh, if you'll excuse the turn of phrase, and it's it's that wonderful moment. And I think that's the part where you just think, oh my god, I'm immediately going home to get my extended edition fellowship <laughs> box out and watch it now. Is that your thought? Your first that thought? was absolutely my thought, yeah. You saw a man fingering a ring, you thought, I need an extended edition, yeah. that's what you thought? That's okay, good. I think, we, I think we've just, uh, if you're playing innuendo bingo at home, I think we've just uh, hit the mother load, so to speak. Oh, uh, but no, the, I mean, the, the multiple ending syndrome is something that Boyens was, was clearly very concerned about and very anxious to avoid this time, and, and I think they did. Uh, they do have a lot of tying up of ends, but at least they don't have those quite long cuts to black between each one, <laughs> which led us all to pick up our bags and head for the exit last time. Am I right, um, am I right in thinking that the, the shot of Gandalf at the end, when everyone's when they, when Bilbo's saying goodbye to the, the dwarfs and they all they all appear and and uh, they're all standing there in the doorway and some of them are, are desperately hoping to have a line, um, <laughs> but they don't they don't they don't get a line or need anything to do, but. Uh, and there's a shot of Gandalf smiling, and it's the exact same shot, isn't it? It's obviously a different shot, shot many years later, but it's the exact same framing as his farewell and that shot when they come into Frodo's room at the end of Return of the King, that much parodied. Yeah, I can't, I can't video. watch that scene anymore after after, yeah. after the classic parody. If you haven't seen the parody, look it up. It's special. Clearly, we we will have an interview with Richard Armitage coming up later on, in which he reveals that they did film a funeral for Thorin Oakenshield. Thought they did. Uh, uh, where yeah. he's buried yeah. with the Arkenstone, as it says in the book. Uh, so there is a feeling that there is a, there's much more here. There's a three-hour version knocking around. Yeah, there is. The extended edition, I think, will have, again, as Boyan said, there, there's mm. going to be a lot in there with the, you know, uh, the fate of everybody else as well. You know, Dane and Bard are sort of, you mm. know, left there. We, You know, in the yeah. book, we know that they become King Under the Mountain and uh, of Dale, uh, respectively, but we don't really see it happen. I think there'll be a bit more of that in the special edition as well as the funeral scenes. I mean, I, I might be unpopular in saying this, but I actually thought the film was too short. <laughs> First time anyone has ever said that. Hey, I'm 100% with Dan on this. I think it's because it's not, not 
necessarily that I felt, wow, I really need another hour and a half. It was more that I really need to see the stuff I didn't see. I want to see more than a single shot of Bjorn, for example. I mm. want to see more mm. eagles. Uh, the Dol Guldur thing uh, is uh, perhaps I think the film's biggest missed opportunity in that, uh, and I've said this before, it it is not only could have been the best sequence in the film, it could have been the best sequence of the year, of the decade. It could have been unbelievable. And yet I felt very much like Jackson was trying to get it out of the way, like he got Smaug out of the way so that he could get on with the battle. And actually, you know, could he have maybe done it slightly differently? Could he have drawn that out and maybe intercut it with the battle to give it a slightly different, almost sort of Return of the Jedi, Phantom mm. Menace-esque, you know? But then you've got the problem sequence. of Gandalf geography. Eagles, Helen, eagles. They solve well, all problems. I'll be honest, with, yeah. I, I, there is one thing that occurred to me with the eagles, and that is that they are a hellaciously powerful uh, thing to have on your side. The in tactical the nukes of Middle Earth. They are the tactical <laughs> nukes of Middle Earth, as well as the buses of Middle Earth. And they need a union. Yeah, they do. But I mean, genuinely, where the hell are they in Lord of the Rings? If they can turn the tide of a battle that big, <laughs> yeah. so decisively, what the heck were they doing roosting. in Lord of the Rings? Roosting. They were roosting. They, they must have been roosting. Wing. I'm not even sure what roosting is, but uh, I, think I think they were doing it. I think they that just roosted. means that they, they sleep overnight. That's well, there you go. They, they, they were having overnight. a big old roost, a massive roost. That's mm. beginning to sound rude. Sunday roost. Peter Jackson's actually been, he, he has spoken out on this, that he found the Eagles very problematic because they are the I win button of this <laughs> particular franchise. You know, as soon as you bring them in, it's game over. Everything's done. Yeah. So he really, really struggled with when to bring them in and he left it to the last possible moment. And it's such a shame because when they come in, you know, the camera work, this is, this is fantasy Top Gun. I mean, it's unbelievable. The camera's yeah. flying around, they're dogfighting with the fell bats. You know, and there's really only, what, a couple of minutes of that? One minute of yeah. that? Mm. Really, really short. I could have watched a feature-length film yeah. of just that. Yeah. I, f- I, felt, I felt the threw away uh, the likes of, of Bjorn and... Uh, who else comes in on the... Radagast. Radagast. Um, Who we all no thought was going to die yeah. and, and doesn't die. I didn't. Why would he die? Because we hoped he might. Oh, no. But no, he's not in Lord of the Rings and I thought maybe well, they would explain that. I mean, they have that freedom. Just, you know, there's, Middle Earth is a big place. I realise that, but this is, you know, the, the nature of prequels is that they tend to tie up too many loose ends like the Strider thing. Yeah. So I kind of thought that, frankly, I thought Toriel and Radagast were going to be first up against the wall with Philly and uh, Killy uh, and all the yeah. other hot I was expecting <laughs> Toriel to go down with, um, sorry, uh, to uh, expire at the same time yes. as um, Philly. Yes. Killy. Killy. And, and, and Which the, one is it? Uh, she was with Killy. Killy, mm-hmm. yes. Killy. who got yes. killied in a sort of you know romantic kind of death embrace kind that's, of scenario. Yeah, I, I I'll be that. honest, that's what I thought was going to happen yeah. as well, and uh, and I was a bit surprised that it didn't. But the, that moment with her and Thranduil, I thought was actually quite cool, and it yeah. revealed a lot about his character at least, if not hers. So I thought that was that was nicely played. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, I I, I would have liked a few more individual moments. I think in some of the battles because I, I think um, sometimes. Uh, Peter Jackson went for the sweep and the scale and the scope of this huge thing happening, mm. but it was a bit too massive in both senses of the word, both in terms of the software and in terms of just the scale. I wanted to see hand-to-hand combat between identifiable people in the melee as well as the sort of the single hat combat going off to one side. Did, there were moments, um, and I get what you're saying, it wasn't so much individual, but I loved, I really loved the sort of the dwarven uh, choreography, the way they mm. sort of moved as one unit, the phalanx, and then they broke apart, yeah. and then the pikes. It was, you know, absolutely military. It was fantastic. And, and Dane, despite being, you know, Uncanny Valley Connolly um, was 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 cool, you know, he in the was, kind of the wide yeah. shot, sort of swinging his hammer about and swearing and what yeah. have you. And mm. I did cheer when the elves leapt over the dwarves' backs. Yeah, oh, that was great. That was awesome. That was a great moment. Yeah, the, the Dane thing's an interesting one though. Uh, and Dane, obviously, famously, I think they, they he had a giant red axe, which has become a hammer in the ultimate film. Uh, <laughs> so at some point, I you know, I want to know why, why was he removed and why was it hammer time? <laughs> it's always hammer time. It's always hammer. It's magnificently no sweary. disrespect. Middle Earth is not a place one really finds expletives, but he starts the thing by what he goes, I invite you all to start off. That was Stod off. Stod off. Stod off. off. And then doesn't he call them buggers and he's yes, bastards yeah. yes, and whatnot? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. There's also There's a nice line earlier on, which uh, I think, I don't know how many people caught it or missed it. It's not swearing, but I really liked when Stephen Fry, as the master, said, uh, I have to evacuate myself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> which. Uh, Oh, Dan. Doesn't mean what he thought it meant. Oh, no, Dan. But Stephen Fry knows. It's, I missed <laughs> Stephen Fry, actually, when he got, you know, squashed. Because he's tons of fun in, yes. in Smaug. And, and I almost wanted more of that. Because Alfred is, is the comic relief throughout this film. And oh, he, uh, alleged comic, comic alleged relief. Comic relief. Oh. I, I must admit, this is the one part of the film I really do think doesn't work very well. And it's one gag, repeat time and time again. He's a coward and he's greedy. Again yeah. and again and again. Mm. And he's 
deeply, deeply unlikable. Here's yeah. the thing. You, your comic relief shouldn't be detestable. No. You shouldn't wish him to be crushed by a dragon the minute he appears on screen. And uh, they, 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 the same guy repeated three times, essentially. Uh, three times, three different characters trust him with something. He immediately fucks it up. And yeah. yet they continue to trust him with it. Oh, so would you look after... Take the Night Watch. <laughs> yeah. oh, 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 there's an elf army that's just come in. Oh, well, well why don't you look after my children? Oh, yeah, no, they're dead. Uh, you know, it <laughs> doesn't yeah. happen. You have one job. You have one job, Alfred. One job, Alfred. And he's job. just deeply unlikable and unfunny. Yeah. And he's even called Alfred Lickspittle. <laughs> yeah. Yes, although and I think he has a daughter who marries a guy called Wormtongue. No, but isn't this the thing that he's supposed to be sort of a mirror of Wormtongue? That's the idea that that's what that character's for. But you don't get yeah, no, that well, at all because he comes genuinely exactly. Horrible. I don't think it works. Mm. Um, so I think I think that is a shame, and, and also feels like the tone of all the scenes that he's in feels like a different movie. It, it doesn't, does. doesn't doesn't work for me at all. I just think I, I feel a bit like if you had taken out the scenes with Alfred. You could have had the scenes at the end with Bard, or you could have had Thorin's yeah. funeral, or you could have had some some closure for some of the characters. The battle for me comes a little bit to a bit of an abrupt end. Obviously, Jackson makes the decision to focus on the battle with Thorin fighting um, Azog. With Thorin fighting Azog, and that's fine and it's cool and it leads to some really lovely moments. But you get the sense that there's much bigger thing happening in the background. So when Azog dies, is everyone on the battlefield just kind of go, "Oh, that's it." That's well, what he's done. Oh. I, th- I think that was interesting because in the book it does say that, you know, that the tide of the battle turned when the dwarves came out the gate. And I thought the film did a really good job mm. of, of making a way that that could possibly be true, that these 13 dwarves could change the tide of the battle. And they do that, first of all, by leading a charge, but secondly, by leading a raid on the enemy's leading, leadership position. And I thought that was clever because they did set up that that signalling you know, uh, turret was significant and then they go and they take down the people in the signalling turret. That, you know, mm, mm. okay, I can see how that would turn the tide of a battle. They Good may work. have overstated Azog's, you know, uh, tactical genius as a general when all he really did was bellow obscenities in Orchid from on top of a hill. <laughs> you know, you know, Sun Tzu he wasn't. Send, send in the big trolls. Yeah. Yeah. Send in the bigger trolls. Unleash the beast. And do orcs really need to be told to kill them, take no prisoners, show yeah. no mercy? I mean, I'm not sure that they... That probably comes naturally. Props, though, for the mobile siege platforms that were the trolls. I loved them, mm. properly loved them. They had ones with ballistae on their shoulders. The, the head-butting battering mm. ram troll was genius. He was great. I loved laughed him. a lot at that. Also, the, the disabled troll with the morning stars for arms and the maces for legs was quite inventive, I thought. Mm. Yeah, a bit, bit you know, unfortunate for the poor fella. And the worms, uh, who, as we just heard from Boyens, are, have actually some kind of you know textual basis and aren't just a tribute to Frank Herbert's Dune. Yeah, so, uh, I was expecting to see there. you know orcs on their backs, you know riding them into battle, but <laughs> they just came, waved, and then I guess went home. Well, I mean, you know, it's quite tiring tunneling underground for all that time. I imagine. Where did they reverse into though? Right, if the if the worms were tunneling and the orcs were following them, <laughs> we saw we, the, yeah, we, the, we saw the worms go back in. But how mm. did the orcs then get out? Well, you see, they, they tunnel, tunnel quite fast, so they they yeah. went back in, but at an angle. Oh, right. Okay. Well, they made a sort of side passage yes. that then they then reversed into. I have if just the, decided, okay. yes. Yeah, okay. If the orcs were following them and they were burying, burrowing through the, the ground for what seemed like days, I mean, yeah. the geography of Middle-earth in these films has always been weird to me. It seems to take one character five seconds to get from somewhere that seems miles away to another place, whereas it takes other characters days to get to cover the same ground. Anyway... That's nitpicking. It's like Empire Strikes Back when Luke gets trained how to be a Jedi in the same mm. amount of time that they go to Cloud City. Anyway, um, but so the burrowing behind the orc, uh, behind the, the weirworms, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So aren't, shouldn't it be covered in weirworm poo? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, okay, we should, the weirworms are, are yes. burning up a lot of energy, I guess, uh-huh. digging, and therefore there they're essentially are no... Um, no, I, yeah, I but they look cool, I got right? nothing. I got nothing. They look yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. Where would they where would they rank on a great big Middle Earth Deadly Sixty? Where would where would Steve <laughs> Bachel put them on his list? Hmm, I mm. guess they'd probably even be above the uh the the Mimikil, Yes. Probably. Yes. Um although they don't have those cool tusks, but they're a lot bigger. Um but they they're probably below the Witch King of Agmar. Agmar Ang- or Angmar? Angmar. 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 Yeah, okay. Right. See, this another another sequence Sorry. I would, would really like to have seen. So you get the part where Legolas and Tariel go to Angmar. Mm. It's that really awesome sort of bladed, rusty fortress. Yeah. And Gundabad. Uh, yeah, Gundabad. Yes, the Gundabad and the ugly. Thank yes. You, um, 
And, and that could have been a great sequence. And, and don't get me wrong, I, I've always loved the way Jackson rallies troops like no one else. Like when you see the orcs come out, you know, and you hear the horns sounding, they stomp out, there's that real sense of foreboding. But, you know, I wanted to see a little bit of, you know, Metal Gear Solid as they infiltrate the <laughs> fortress and, you know, spying on the orcs. You know, there, there seems like there was a whole sequence there, which I shall look forward to on the extended edition. Unless it wasn't. Unless there was In which case, need to go back and reshoot. Yes, immediately. Just to satisfy your curiosity. Peter, if you're listening, that would be really appreciated. Indeed. I'm sure he is. Hello, Peter. So let's, let's talk about some of the, the major plot developments. Uh, after two films of, frankly, fannying about, finally... <laughs> oh, come on. Some dwarfs get deadified yes, in this do. one. And as we, we mentioned earlier on, uh, it's all the hot dwarfs. All of them. Yeah. Like 100% that is actually of the true, isn't it? Well, message on, is, don't, in this don't, film... Messages in this film, do not be a hot dwarf. Or you'll get killied. Yes. What about, what about James Nesbitt? Does he, is, he, is he borderline hot dwarf? No, he's got a bad hat. Uh, well, yeah, there's the hat. <laughs> it's, the, it's the hat. It's, the, That's it's, some bad hat. it's an unhot hat. It's hiding his hotness. Yes. Okay, all right, That's fine. some bad hat, Harry. That's some bad okay. hat, Harry. That's some bad hat, Bofer. Bofer, that's his name, Bofer. Oh, it's the line of Durin, isn't it? Isn't that the relevant thing? Not how good-looking they are? Well, but, I mean, there they, are clearly cousins, because we, we know that, you know, Dane is explicitly... Thorin's cousin. Yeah. So it's not the entire bloodline. It's maybe the direct line, but yeah. there must be others. And I mean, it can't even be the direct male line because obviously they're his sister's sons, Philly yeah. and Killy. So there must be, um, you know, the, 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 they're not patrilineal necessarily dwarves. Mm. I'm just pushing my glasses up my nose as I say that. So, you know, maybe that maybe there are more in the line out there. I mean, I guess Dane is, is obviously the closest um, family member. Well, Philly is the first to fall. Uh, in a scene that quite literally quite literally yes which in a scene that I was curious as to whether or not that was a deliberately sanitised shot or whether this was a BBFC cut because you don't see or indeed hear the blade going through him when he dies we, we don't want it to be grisly we don't want it to be you know early Jackson yes we do well, we, we kind of do there are enough there are enough <laughs> decapitated you know there are enough severed heads and things being impaled and stabbed in this film to, to last a lifetime if you added blood, it would be an 18-rated movie. This is, but this is a slight, you know, ongoing niggle of mine. I really object to having r- real ultra-violence rendered unviolence mm. by taking out the blood. Like, if you're, that's fine. If you, if you don't want to be too violent, here's an idea. Don't be too violent. Um, instead of having people run through, beheaded and chopped up without a drop of blood. I mean, sometimes there's a little seepage of blood, but there's never anything that might indicate someone's head has been chopped off. Is everybody heating their weapons to cauterize wounds as they make them? I mean, it, it, it genuinely began to annoy me, especially in this film, because there well, are just is... so, there's so much carnage yeah, and, yeah. and nary a drop. Well, well, how, a... how do we know that orcs even have blood in the same way I'm we not, have blood? I'm not just talking about orcs. You know, there's, there's people, yeah. you know, there's, there's men, there's dwarves, there's elves, all killed, yeah. and no... You know, no blood. Yeah, it's to do. This is again. I know it's, it's, it's the weird, arbitrary nature of censorship, isn't it? That blood yeah. and gore is bad, but apparently, v- consequenceless violence is absolutely fine. Um, one of the things I guess we just have to live with. I know. But this this is filmmaking tradition going all the way back. You know, in mm. westerns where people get shot and they clutch their chest and there's, there's not yeah. even a bullet hole in the shirt. Or Robin Hood, or you know, swashbucklers. Yeah, but but in you know, in fairness, there was less violence in those movies. I mean, until you get up to about the Wild Bunch, there was much less violence. And it is possible to have quite a small entry wound from a gunshot, especially with the kind of small calibre bullets they were using in the Old West. As long as you don't see them from the back. But if you're chopping off somebody's head, I don't know, I, th- I feel like it's a different thing. Anyway, this has been a bugbear of mine ever since the Golden Compass. We should Compass. have a podcast special just on censorship. In yes. That this, this film, you know, has a body count in the millions, and yet if there'd been a pair of boobs in it, it would have gone two ratings further up. But, uh, yeah, Paddington has uh, some mild innuendo as the PG, and this is, a, exactly. I'm assuming it's going to be a 12A. Yeah. Um, I think so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, but yeah, it's interesting you talk about the body count. We're going to, go, we're going to discuss the, the major deaths in a second. But uh, the beginning of the film is really hardcore. You know, this is a, a, at, at its heart based on a kid's book, and it begins with a dragon just nuking Lake Town <laughs> yeah. and yeah. hundreds, if not thousands, of innocent people, including, let's, let's be honest here, probably Stephen Colbert, Burned get alive. fried, mm-hmm. crushed. And, and his family. Impaled. And, you know, it's, it's kind of brutal in a way. A fantastic sequence, though. Or yeah. better than the whole of Rain of Fire, in fact, in 10 minutes. Oh, you take uh, that back. You, no, take, you take, take that back. back. I will not take it back. 
What about the bit where they put on a performance of Star Wars for Admittedly, the kids? Admittedly, that's a great sequence. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, I would I would agree with you. That was some proper dragon action. Mm, that was that's really the dragons you want. And even when he was mm. wounded and he was flying up in a sort of circle above the above the inferno below, that was a gorgeous shot. That's my mm. shot of the film. I genuinely do not understand though why that wasn't the end of the last film. I really don't get it. That was seems such a good point that they could have ended the first film. And then they've actually got that bit where it breaks, and yeah. then and then it's like, and now begins yeah. this part. And I really don't get that. But I wonder if it's because of the uh, the influence of the Empire Strikes Back. Where now there might be a feeling that if you have a trilogy, you have to end the second movie on a point where it looks things look bad for our heroes. And if they if they'd killed Smaug, even though Lake Town had been destroyed at that point, it's still a note of triumph. So maybe uh, maybe last thing you like, that. I like the the uncertainty to that note of triumph. No one's yeah. going hooray hooray because Lake Town's completely destroyed, and then everyone's like, "Hang on a minute." Well, now this mountain's empty. What's going to happen next? It's a pretty major effect sequence. Maybe they hadn't given themselves an extra that's, year to work on it. Might have been a, that's uh, an excuse, honestly, not a reason. I wonder whether it's not that if you kill the dragon at the end of the second one, everyone kind of goes home because the mm. book is a book about going to kill a dragon. And once the dragon's dead, I mean, let's be honest, in the book, the Battle of Five Armies is kind of a footnote. You know, all of the events, you've essentially resolved the primary narrative. So I think maybe he almost wanted to leave that till the last one. But Dad's absolutely right. It does feel like you've stepped into the end of the previous film. And there's even that cut, isn't it? The dragon dies, it goes to black, you see Erebor, and suddenly the title comes up, the Battle of the Five Armies. And you think, oh, right, now the film started. And I think that's a, that's a deliberate... So that's, a pre, that's the, the Bondian pre-credit sequence. Exactly, yeah, it's your cold <laughs> opening. But what it also does is it, it keeps the dragon, it keeps Smaug fresh in people's minds, and it keeps the idea of the dragon and dragon sickness uh, around, which is yeah. a very, very crucial part yeah. of the movie, and obviously Thorin succumbs to it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, plus helpful flashbacks. Plus, yeah, plus uh, some helpful flashbacks as well. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I thought that was a really, really, really cool sequence. In fact, I was surprised by, by how uh, severely Smaug destroyed Lake Town. I mean, he torches the shit out of that place. <laughs> yes, he does. Nothing's mm. left apart from that convenient clock tower where Bard uh, <laughs> uses his son as a bow. That was a Don't nice try moment. That, that yeah. was a nice moment. I did like the boy bow, as we shall call it. Uh, We've I got Bilbo and Boybo. Boybo, yes. I thought that was particularly well done. I also quite like that uh, Smaug's, uh, you know, sort of vindictiveness and arrogance knows so little bounds that he's prepared to, while slaughtering millions, stop to taunt one guy standing on a tower for having the temerity to shoot apple, uh, apples at him. <laughs> now, that would be an interesting film. Yeah, no, it was, it was a good moment, and he's sort of gloating and, and then obviously takes a, a black arrow uh, in the chest. He monologued. He did monologue. <laughs> you see, Smaug, Smaug, yeah. Smaug. Have you learned nothing from movies? <laughs> Never monologue. But I'm also glad about that because I, I actually thought we weren't going to get to hear uh, Benedict Cumberbatch yep. uh, as Smaug one last time. He's will, right. will you will you follow me one last time? I didn't think we'd, we'd get that, but it was it was nice to hear that moment. But from there, let's go back to the uh, the, the big deaths. So Killy, Philly, previously on the Empire podcast, Philly was being thrown off <laughs> off a <laughs> off a ledge to his doom, having been stabbed already. Yes. Yeah, that was pretty pretty brutal. Killy, if people who've read the book know that these. Dwarf said there was going to be a bit of a body count, which is good because, you know, in in the Lord of the Rings saga, mm. one member of the Fellowship dies, and that's in the first film. Yeah. Apart from that, well, actually, technically, two, two die, die in the, in the first, first film. film. Just one comes back. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But you know, the, the actual body count. There is a. If you're looking at the uh, the Fellowship graveyard, there's only one tombstone. Yeah. There, yeah. Is, there is a point here in that the dwarves, I think, for all, you know, Peter Jackson, I think, said he was trying to give them uh, distinct personalities. There is a sense that the only thing that really distinguishes them, even in the final film, is the colour and length of their beards. And, <laughs> I honestly can't tell them apart. I still I, can't tell I them apart. I do think this is a problem, even through the film, that they don't have distinct personalities. I think Killy and Thorin obviously do, because yeah. they have more to do than the others. Yeah. But a lot of the others, I mean. Balin and Dwellin got a fair amount here, um, mm. which was great. Graham, Graham Tavish as Dwalin and, mm. and Ken Stott as Balin mm-hmm. both both came in thrown and actually I was really glad to see that because in the book Balin is the one who keeps coming up over and over again as Bilbo's best friend among the dwarves oh, really? it's not really Thorin he's a bit remote he's a bit untouchable which I think to be honest he has been in the last two films as well but it's it's Balin who kind of keeps him sane let's not forget the guy with the ear horn yes. who in every scene whatever's happening whether or not someone's speaking <laughs> Puts the ear horn up to his ear. Bless him. Is that Oin? Is that Oin? Maybe it's the horn of Gondor. Yes. Balin actually is great because Graham McTavish genuinely looks like he could break your shit in half. It's Dwalin. Uh, Dwalin, sorry, they're all the same to me. I'm just a dwarf racist. But there's a sequence at the end when they go to to Ravenhill and you think, well, 
Graham McTavish is there, they're fine because he will sort <laughs> yeah. shit out. And obviously Peter Jackson thought, you know what, that's a good point. Uh, goblin mercenaries. And so suddenly, <laughs> out of nowhere, a company of goblin mercenaries come over the hill specifically to distract Graham McTavish. And, and that is a great line, by the way. Goblin mercenaries, no more than 100 will handle them. <laughs> Brilliant. Although, hang on a yes. minute. No, no, no. That's earlier on. That's earlier on in the fight. The goblin mercenaries come and Thorin and Dwalin take them on. Uh-huh. Bilbo comes up, warns them about the additional attack, right? Mm-hmm. That's when Thorin realises that Philly and Killy need to come out of the place he sent them into to die. Then Thorin goes off, to, and then it's Philly and Killy, and then Dwalin and Bilbo are dealing with not goblin mercenaries, the big, cool-looking, white-eyed orcs that come at them. Bilbo gets knocked on the head. Then Dwalin disappears. You know, now Dwalin could have turned the tide of the battle, Thorin versus Azog. He could have helped save Philly and Killy, but he does, he just disappears. Part timer. Yeah. Yeah. Presumably he's off fighting orcs somewhere. Let's just assume. I actually thought he died. Oh no! Yeah, I thought no, he had but died. He is specifically yeah. there on but the. He's there, on the, he's there at the, the end. end. Yeah. Um, I was a little bit disappointed. I was I was actually quite glad that Bilbo got knocked out for a bit just because I, you couldn't have him knocked out for the whole battle, but it was a nice little nod yeah. to the book. Mm. But I, I was a little bit disappointed that he didn't get to shout the eagles are coming as they arrive. <laughs> um, because, I don't know, it felt like that was a cool thing. I remember you, that in the book and being really excited about it. And... I wonder if people know, if they've not read The Hobbit recently, that when Bilbo gets knocked out, that's basically the end of the battle because he wakes up and the eagles have resolved it all. So yeah. the conclusion of the battle essentially happens off screen. Or yeah. page. Mm. Gandalf basically tells him what happened yeah. and then he goes to see Thorin's deathbed. And It's Twilight all, all over again. Sad. Yeah. Or, or <laughs> beginning before, or in 1937. Let's talk about Achilles' death before we move on to Thorin, Rook and Shield. It's obviously meant to have an emotional impact. Mm. Didn't You can tell because it hangs on his face for 20 seconds while he dies. It does. It didn't for me, I'll be honest, but uh, I've always been kind of, I've, I've always been cold to the uh, the Toriel uh, Killy relationship. Uh, mainly because I'm just trying to figure out how it will work. I mean, it's, it's, it's just you're it's, against interspecies. Sex. No, I'm not. No. I'm absolutely not. In fact, I've got a, a number of oh, great God. videos I can show you. But uh, there's the hands, the hands. Yes, again, the, the fake hands. Part. The fake hands. It's yeah. her huge hands, his little hands. He is very tall for a dwarf. She, she notes. So he's not mm. meant to be that much shorter than her. Mm. Um, but uh, he has big fake hands. That's the thing. I, that's the thing I was mm. thinking of. He's got giant hands, and she has quite normal sized ones. Um, but oh, I, I, I thought it was sorry. quite sweet. I, I thought it was quite sweet. I thought it was quite, you know, touching in the end. I think she sold it very well. The yeah. whole where, where she's sort of facing off against Randwell over it. Uh, I think that's a, that's a nice touch. I think he um, he had less to do in that scene. I think he made his mark in the in the earlier scene by the by the lake when they're leaving Lake Town. I thought he was really really sweet there, um, and totally handsome. So for a go. dwarf, he's a hot dwarf. He's a, a hot, a hot dwarf. dwarf. The only one without prosthetics. Now, I might add. Dan, you've seen the extended editions more di- more recently than me. Yes. They do explain somewhere why he had to shave his beard off, didn't they? Not in the Desolation of Smaug extended edition. No, in the first one. In the first one. No, I haven't seen that recently. uh, Why? There's an explanation. Apparently he lost a bet or something. All dwarves should have beards. And the fact that he doesn't is, is... Due to losing a bet or something of that uh, nature, I can't with remember. With those cheekbones? <laughs> I, know, I don't right? think so. <laughs> um, but yeah, okay, you know, so you guys were a little bit more uh, taken by the, the Tariel uh, Killy relationship than I was. Fair enough. Cool. I mean, you know, he was, he was um, a good dwarf. And may he rest in peace. Mm. I mean, uh, you know, but, he's, he's all right for, for Aragorn to fancy an elf in the first ones, humans and elves. Why shouldn't dwarves and elves be allowed to get it on? Yeah, and, sizest. Hmm? I'm not a sizest! And, <laughs> it's absolutely fine it's okay sure it'll be fine okay uh, let's talk about Thorn Oakenshield because even though the film is called The Hobbit this movie more than the others belongs to Richard Armitage as opposed to the agents of Oakenshield I'm giving you a hard stare a la Paddington <laughs> um, I thought uh, let's talk about the, the character first of all uh, Thorn who as we kind of mentioned to Richard Armitage in the interview you're about to hear really gets to run the gamut here. He goes insane, he loses his mind completely, he has a lovely redemptive moment, he gets a big fight with a CG orc, and then he gets a, a wonderful heroic death. Uh, so this must have been whenever he was reading the script going, oh yeah, yeah, this is it, this yeah. is it, this is the stuff I'm looking forward to playing. What do we think, what do we make of Thorn in this movie? I think he's great. I, I, I loved the uh, the descent into madness. I thought that, that sort of worked very well. It kind of Because again, you have to make sense of the fact that he's frankly being utterly unreasonable. Uh, and my favourite moment of that is the discussion he has with Bard shot through the hole in the barricade. I thought that's wonderfully framed. Just yeah. a really, really lovely shot. Uh, and then, of course, the moment where 
the man is just seizes him and he starts hallucinating dragons and lights and you get that sort of weird psychedelic almost 60s-esque uh, sort of light patterns flashing on his face the use of slow-mo as he's talking to show you know universal sign of madness speaking mm. in slow motion um, uh, it reminded me of like Garth Marenghi uh, joke where they, you know, we were running <laughs> we were running eight minutes short each episode was running eight minutes short so we had to use slow-mo to bump up the running time where possible we tried to avoid using it over dialogue <laughs> but, there's a, but that, that, that moment where he's talk, he talks to Bilbo and he's basically saying oh uh, you know I suspect that I've been betrayed by my kin mm. and he starts speaking and there's a little bit of slow-mo in the voice as well but Armitage's voice drops down mm like several octaves lower than it normally does. It feels almost like, you know, he talks in the interview about, he, he, it, it's analogous, the dragon sickness to uh, heroin addiction or, you know, some other addiction to some other drug, caffeine perhaps. But uh, in that moment, for me, it felt more like demonic possession than anything else. You know, you almost expect his face to turn like Bilbo's does in, mm. the, in the first movie or even Galadriel's does in that in, in Fellowship and indeed here as well. Um, but yeah, I think it's a really, really well-modulated performance. And... Uh, yeah, the yeah the the moment the the moment where he he descends into the, the the sort of psychotropic madness and you know comes through it didn't entirely work for me, but it really buys I guess the the moment where he returns as a triumphant warrior and goes, yeah. "Will you follow me one last he time?" He comes out of it very quickly. It's not a gradual thing. He just seems to snap out of it yeah. after the hallucination. He doesn't go cold turkey, for example, uh, you know, <laughs> spending six weeks in a room crying. He doesn't have time to. He doesn't have time to. But I like that what, what you explicitly hear what, what kind of brings him back to himself is the voices of his friends and family, yeah. and mm. I think that's good. Um, but to be honest, I mean, I love Richard Armitage. By the way, if you haven't seen The Crucible, it's going to be on uh, cinema screens soon, so you should try and check that out from his stage performance this summer. But to me, Man of the Match... Was man of the match was Martin Freeman? I thought he was absolutely astonishing in this. Just little tiny moments, and I don't think anyone really does little tiny moments as well as Martin Freeman yeah, does. It's great. Um, even just sitting wordless next to Gandalf after the battle. That's a great. The smoke absolutely yeah, incredible that's great. scene. Um, you know uh, his, his reactions during Thorin's death scene, heartbreaking, mm. utterly heartbreaking. I thought he was wonderful. I love the scene where he turned up at, at Thranduil's tent. Yes. And there's Bard and Thranduil there, and he actually brings out the Arkenstone. Yeah. And, well, you know. in, in, in a movie that is short on levity, yeah. it has the, the, that has the funniest moment where Thranduil basically goes, oh, you're the burglar who stole my keys. And he goes, mm, yes. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah. Martin Freeman has this, he must have this incredible, almost like a Pantone chart of comedy, comedic reactions and deadpan, yeah. you know. It's just, it's just fantastic. I, I think, and I think I've said this before in the podcast, I think his performance in... Uh, all three films is one of the best, if not the best, performance in the entire saga. I think mm. he's fantastic. I think he brings a humanity to Bilbo mm. that is really endearing. He turns befuddlement into a kind of zen-like art form. It's mm. astonishing. He really does. But for for me, still, I think Bilbo gets slightly sidelined in the movie because of the nature of the battle, and obviously he gets knocked unconscious for a bit. That doesn't help either. But for me, the movie does belong to to Armitage and, and Thorne Oakenshield. This is more his story, I think, than Bilbo's at, at, at this point. And I think I think Armitage really sells it well. I think uh, I think it's a very interesting take on the character. And um, my, you, Helen, you were talking about your favourite shot. My favourite shot is um, when Thorne watches what looks to be the corpse of Azog yeah. floating underneath the ice. And that's yeah. just a, that's a a lovely moment for me. We're all you know. We're all expecting him to open his eyes at that moment, but you know, but it's still it's still a pretty uh, pretty lovely shot, and uh, I I love their fight as well, especially when you hear the interview with Richard Armitage and you'll you'll hear how they did that fight. Yeah, for it to come out as well as it did is pretty hmm. pretty amazing. The Ravenhill sequence as a whole, I think, is the high point of the battle. It's it's very nice. You you get the sort of the crowd pleasing stuff where you've got Legolas doing his uh, elven acrobatics when he yeah. runs up that sort of falling staircase of of dropping stone, which is fantastic. You know all the stuff with Bolg where he's fighting with him. Yeah. Uh, the only thing that maybe seems a little odd is when uh, when Thorin's fighting with Azog on the lake. Azog has a sword arm in many ways, very close to Richard Armitage's head, and yet he insists on swinging around a block of concrete on a chain. Not a master tactician. That's what <laughs> <laughs> Didn't he see Batman Begins? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it reminded me, of course, of that sequence in the Jack Reacher novel, The Affair, when Reacher finds a man with a hammer. And it he, is, it's, it's, I think, modelled yeah, on that scene. I would imagine so. I imagine most movies are modelled on, also, on Jack Reacher. Also, just in case anyone doesn't know, that Azog is in fact voiced and uh, performed by uh, Manu Bennett, who we all see a lot more of in really every sense, in Spartacus. <laughs> uh, so if you want to see his cock, that's the place to go. I would say that with the brief mention of Bolg earlier, there is, there is a kind of an Easter egg in this film, which is the orc jailer in Dol Guldur, the one right. that taunts Gandalf. 
Okay. Do you remember yeah. this? He yes. talk, the one that talks Gandalf and pulls the, the cage down and rolls and it around. And And gets swiftly dispatched. Very early on, I think it was after, it was around the time of the, the first Hobbit film, they released a picture of Bolg, what Bolg was going to look like in the next film. And the picture was of uh, somebody wearing a prosthetic suit uh, and it looked very different from the Bolg that eventually appeared in Desolation of Smaug. And there were quite a lot of people uh, who had spotted this and complained because they'd really liked, including Nick, in fact, mm-hmm. Empire's Nick Semelin, had uh, complained that they preferred the original character design. Well, that Jailer Orc is the original Bolg. That's unbelievable, Bolg. Hmm? Oh. There you go. And if we want to see Bolg's cock in real life, where will we go? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, New Zealand? <laughs> <laughs> where it's currently on yeah. display. <laughs> to, at, at, the, workshop. At, yeah, <laughs> at the Te Papa Museum. Yeah. Yeah, Does anyone have anything more to add on the Dol Guldur situation? I, as I said, this is my biggest missed opportunity. I think, you know, you have a massive battle royale between, I don't know, the Nazgul and Elrond <laughs> and Galadriel and Saruman. It's the greatest moment in the history of cinema and it's over in seconds. Well, th- it's not even it just Saruman. It's not just Saruman. It's, uh, it's Gandalf. It's the first time we've ever seen the, th- well, apart from the council in the first film of The Hobbit, it's the first time we've seen the three wielders of the elf rings together. Like, you know, in a fighting situation. I was Against geeking out. Against the witch out. king of Angmar. Against the witch king of Angmar. I mean, yeah, I was kind of geeking out just at the situation. Yeah. Uh, that's Gandalf, Elrond and Galadriel. Does Gandalf have an elf ring? He does, yes. Oh, I thought Galadriel's husband had the elf ring, no. had the other elf ring. No, he's just a consort. He doesn't matter. Oh. Galadriel does have some serious game, though. I think we She's got to that. major game. The I thing, I mean, I get this, and I, I was speaking to Ian about this in the office, that, that this isn't Sauron's film. You know, they, Sauron is about Lord of the Rings. This isn't about Sauron. I think the difficulty is, is for us, having seen Lord of the Rings, everything's about Sauron. And once you've seen Sauron, it's kind of hard to get that upset about marauding orcs because it's Dark Lord, the servant of Morgoth. You know, he's there. Um, and that's a, that could have been, you know... But then uh, the whole point is it could have been a lot, but it then, I suppose, would have overshadowed the rest of the film. So I guess you need to move on from that to give the other stuff perspective. Yeah. But you're right, it is over very, very quickly. And in fact, it's never, to my mind anyway, entirely established what's happening. It's like, mm. where the Nazgul come from? And Yeah, you're talking about the, the the three ring bears, of course, so the elf ring bears. Gandalf's a little bit out of it at that point. Yeah. It's a bit of a bit of a shame. He really isn't involved in that battle. But I also love the aftermath as well. They're basically going, they're going, oh, so we've, we've kind of banished Sauron. He's going to take a while. And, you know, and Saruman basically goes, oh, you leave him to me. Don't worry. I've got this, guys. Nothing bad will happen. It's all good. It's, you know, it's Nothing basically. to see here. <laughs> yeah. Carry on. Yeah. Why, why doesn't anyone ever listen to Elrond? I know. This is it. It's just like, you know, like Elrond's like, yeah, okay, destroy the ring now, destroy the ring. No, go to keep it. And Elrond's like, oh, <laughs> listen to me. This time it's like, Elrond's like, okay, now we've got the perfect opportunity to solve this. Saruman's like, no, leave it to me. It's like Elrond's like, you know. He's like 5,000 years old. Yeah, yeah it's not so much Elrond the half elven as Elrond the half listened to. <laughs> Christopher Lee is a hell of a mover for a guy in his 90s. Yeah. I presume he did all his own stuff. I'm sure he did all his own stuff. He learned all those moves on The Man with the Golden Gun. Yeah. Did I tell you I knew J.R.R. Tolkien? Yes, you did. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> Gandalf, very, very quickly. A little bit sidelined in the movie. I don't know if you get enough Gandalf for your buck in this one. I, I feel like he, he's always best as, a, as an enabler, if you will, of other people's adventures. He shouldn't be necessarily always leading the way himself. And to that extent, he does quite well here. I liked seeing him sort of not manipulate Bard and the Elf King and... and Thorin, but at least try and bring about peace, at least try and do some diplomacy there. That was kind of cool. Well, I actually like the way that, you know, quite often Gandalf turns up and everyone, like, listens reverently. I actually really like the fact that Thranduil was just like, I'm not listening to you. You, you just you just mess around, you know, you complain and you moan and you shout warnings and I'm, I'm still doing my own thing. I actually, I really like that little kind of exchange. Thranduil, the faithless woodland sprite, which I thought was perhaps <laughs> the best put down of the film. <laughs> uh, and the end. Uh, you said earlier on when Gandalf, I thought it was interesting that Gandalf basically says, oh, I knew all along you had a magic ring. I knew it. I knew it. I just didn't want to say. Yeah. Um, Did that ring false with anyone? And and I asked Boyens when exactly he knows, and she kind of sidestepped the question a little bit, I thought. I mean, listen back to that that interview, yeah. But she didn't didn't quite answer it. I wonder whether it's important to Gandalf at that point, because the magic rings seem to be, you know, a dime a dozen in Middle Earth these days. Yeah, so maybe Um, that's it. So maybe that's what... But here's a question for you. Why doesn't the ring make Sauron invisible? Uh, Because Sauron 
because it's part of him, maybe? It's greater than he is? You're just making up I'm words. I'm making up words. <laughs> I think Gandalf knew about the ring uh, in an unexpected journey. Okay. I think he knew about the ring when Bilbo first appeared with it. Yeah, there's said. a moment between them. Mm-hmm. And then in the second film, there's another moment where he goes, what did you find? Yes, and I think he, he's waiting, he's just waiting for Bilbo to tell him and Bilbo still doesn't. And you can see this look. So I actually, I think there's a thread all the way through that makes yeah. that, that moment work. I agree, James, earlier on that uh, Bilbo lies to Gandalf for the first time at the end of the movie. I don't think he does. He's blind to him all the way through the, through the, uh, the three films. Um, yeah, but I think it's the sense of corruption. That's, the, that's, that's for me, it's the point where you see the ring's corruption starting to take hold of him. You, yeah. know, you feel it. Yeah, but it doesn't because corrupt him. It, uh, you know, he basically just... Because the ring corrupts hobbits in the end, it just takes yeah. longer. Yeah, but it takes them uh, a long, long time indeed. Um, do you think we'll find out more about the ring? Do you think they'll make any more movies about it? I'm really intrigued to see where this one goes. Silmarillion, yeah, the movie. <laughs> yeah. We can hope, Chris. Yeah? We can hope. I just want to know where, where it came from, who it yeah. belongs to, and how they're going to destroy it, if indeed they, they ever will. Why would they destroy it? It's really helpful. <laughs> who knows? Maybe we'll find out more one these days. But this is... Until the next one, <laughs> anyway, the last of the Lord of the Rings movies. Uh, fitting end to the all six films, do you, do you think? A fitting middle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm still sort of torn. On, we were discussing on the podcast last week what order to watch films in, where the chronological order of release is not the same as the chronological narrative order. Um, and I'd still probably be tempted to watch the Lord of the Rings before The Hobbits um, for someone who had never seen them before. Um, but at the same time, this was a, a heck of a lot of fun and you could absolutely watch them right through and see things develop and grow once you've already seen them once. Uh, so, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, it's not quite up there with the, you know, the greatest of the Lord of the Rings. My favourite's possibly Fellowship, but it's but it's a heck of a film. Yeah, they're maybe not the artistic triumphs of the first mm. Three Rings movies, as evidenced by the fact it isn't in the Oscar conversation. And but. yet, I think props need to be given to Peter Jackson for the fact that in Lord of the Rings he adapted arguably the greatest fantasy books of all time into the greatest fantasy films of all time. With this, he took <clears throat> a much lesser piece of literature and still turned it into something great. It's not as great, but really, if you look at the source, it never could have been. So I think, you know, still lots of respect to Peter for that. I'm just looking forward to the special editions of the Lord of the Rings that put Tariel in them. <laughs> you know, yes. when all the elves, when all the elves are leaving, yep. she'll, she'll just, just, just CG her into it, so she's one of the elves, and she'll just walk past go... Do you think like, he's going to go full Lucas? Like every five years, he's going to go in and change something yeah. else, tweak a little bit. <laughs> the elves will be holding walkie-talkies when they come into Rivendell. I'm well, hoping he'll be too busy making Temeraire. Indeed, and uh, you know, and now of course, shared universes are all the rage. Why not have an Alfred Lickspittle spin-off? I want to see that. I'm sure we all want to see that. No. Okay, just me? All right. That is it for our The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies uh, spoiler special. Probably could talk about this one for a long, long time, but sadly time is against us. Uh, thank you, of course, to Helen. Thank you. To Dan. Maria. And to James. I'll leave you with one thought. Don't. And, of course, it's goodbye for me. Before we do go, though, here's the final interview of the spoiler special. Will you listen to Richard Armitage one last time? Helen and I went long to talk to him in London earlier this week. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by Richard Armitage. Hello, sir. How are hey, you? Hey, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. This is Thorne's journey. This is the part, I imagine, when you got the script. This is the bit you were looking forward most to doing. You get to go mad. You get to have a big fight at the end. You get to have a, a moment of redemption. This yeah, is- I mean, it was interesting because the first draft of the script was uh, was a really a sketch of what what it ultimately evolved into. And the end of the book is relatively brief compared to the, the detail with which... Pete Fran and Phil uh, imagined in their in their screenplay, but it was a real privilege to take on the the dragon sickness and really investigate something very abstract and and daring. How do you do that? Did you you can't research dragon sickness? There are no dragons around. I've just checked. I kind of looked at uh, kind of equivalent types of addiction, so drug addiction, a bit of schizophrenia, um, mental illnesses, and how they affected your body, and what kind of irrational mind it would create. And, and, and then uh, I, I sort of put it into the idea of a fantasy movie, so that it, was, it wasn't, you know, like a medical condition, but we could, we could kind of wall him up in the mountain and make him really go crazy. And, and uh, you know, the ultimate manifestation of that is Pete's very kind of avant-garde, a- abstract uh, moment where... Thorin is pulled out of the gold that's that's uh, enveloping him. Yeah, uh, I, I I love that moment. How, how did you film that? Was it green screen or did you? Uh, 
Because there are moments when the lights are shining in your eyes. Uh, I imagine, I, I almost picture Peter shining lights, literally shining lights in your eyes as that scene was being filmed. You know, in the screenplay, it's, it was a single stage direction um, where Thorin sees his own reflection and he, uh, I think he sees the dragon coming back at him, which was a very literal uh, imagining of what that scene might be. And I really like the fact that Peter kept it more open and, and uh, ambiguous and that it's really about... Thorin's memory of the entire quest and who who has influenced him along the way and those the words that bring him back and it was it's much more sparse than I imagined I think at one point there was going to be piles of gold everywhere but we've already seen that so yeah um, Pete built like a, a completely green uh, platform with a with a ramp and he said is there anything else you need I was like yeah can we put some weird music on and <laughs> I'd like two stunt guys to tie some ropes to my feet so that they could sort of drag me down and pull me back Oh, really? down this ramp as if he was being really sucked into the gold so yeah it was a fun a fun morning wow that's proper acting that is you know you've got very little there to work with and just sort of you know using your body essentially to get the, the emotions yeah I mean it was I just thought well let's let's have a little experiment and see what we come up with mm. it's a cool scene and I love that you you do have those callbacks to the whole quest and you see him being essentially pulled back by friendship and I think that that's a very Tolkien thing throughout there's always that something corrupting people and and it's it's other people who who kind of pull them back from themselves yeah I think that's really at the heart of the story and it's something I love about the way Pete works is that in a single moment he can just remind you of why why we've come on this tale with him so far and it's through the ultimately it's through the words of the protagonists of of Bilbo and Gandalf those those lines that Tolkien gives us, and I think I think really Tolkien puts himself in in the heart of the Hobbit, and he himself at the time that the book was being written was was afraid of a, womb, a, a looming war in, in Europe, and and he's reminding us to to sort of cherish home. Definitely. I think he was a bit of a Hobbit himself, though. I, mean, <laughs> I think he also is. Loved, I think he's absolutely home. a Hobbit. <laughs> Although I think Peter Jackson's a Hobbit too. <laughs> <laughs> are you expecting people to uh to say will you follow me one last time i hope so i think yeah. it's a really great kind of catchphrase yeah. don't you yeah I've just one last time one last time <laughs> yeah. until the next one, <laughs> one last podcast <laughs> one last time but then another last but time. then but just one more last time yeah. it's like the eternal farewell tour isn't it <laughs> i promise this is definitely this the is last definitely time. the last one this is it yeah there you go this is it I mean, you filmed this uh, about a year and a half ago now, or something like that. People keep saying yeah. it was three years ago. Some people have said it's four years ago. I've kind four of lost, I've lost track of time. Um, it feels like yesterday. That's what's so interesting yeah. about it. And again, it's testament to to Peter Jackson. It, it feels so vivid when you see it on screen. Yeah. When I see it on screen, everything comes flooding back. It's such a sensory experience as you're working and. I remember every detail about it. Do you remember what the last thing you shot was? I do. It's the moment when when Thorin has to choose whether he lets Azog's sword run through his chest or whether he tries to hold him off until his last breath. And he makes that decision. And that was my last shot, the, the, the close-up of the look in, in his eyes of uh, deciding to die in order to, to save his people. And it was, a, it was an emotional shot. And, you know... Lots of tears were shed afterwards. Wow, oh what, what a great place to finish, though. It was, and I, great I think it wasn't by accident. I think Pete decided I want that last shot to be his last shot, even though what happened afterwards is sort of the end. But really, the moment that Thorin's lights go out are in, are in that moment. Yeah. He so chooses death. You, you were feeling almost in the same mindset as him. This is it. I'm going out. Yeah, and I... But I, but I sort of didn't really know. I didn't know it was my last shot until I looked over and everyone had gathered. And Pete went, <laughs> "That was that was it. That was the end." Oh my god! Uh, it's quite hard when you hear those words from from working on something for so long. When Pete said, "Okay, you're wrapped. You're done." Oh my god! You don't believe him. You're like, "Come on, you're going to bring us back, aren't you?" <laughs> there must be one more. Yeah, <laughs> just one more. Uh, did you get a, a nice wrap gift? I know that they, they tend to give wrap gifts whenever you're part you know of the wrap gifts came after at the end of the first block before I think they decided that they were making three films. Um, so that yeah, the, but I was gifted my a sword and uh, the oak and shield, the map and the key, um, which I treasure. Uh, and just going back to the fight with uh, with uh, Azog. How did you do it? What was there? Was Manu there, or was it wasn't Manu? It was a it was a really really tall basketbally playing stunt guy who was I think about 
seven foot tall with a little extra foot on his head of uh, like a spike so that with an eye line um but he was amazing he really really fought every beat of that fight and and worked so hard and you know the thing is when an actor's fighting a stunt guy all the attention goes to how you know how the actor is and this he he just worked so hard and was was relentless and had it not been for him getting back up on his feet and starting again it you know it inspires me to be like come on you've got to got to give it give it another go and Pete just kept asking for more and more and more and I was spent by the end. But what I loved about it is that they built the lake. They built like a, they poured a, a floor and they wet it down so that it was really truly slippy. We shot on a hydraulic gimbal for the for when the ice breaks up and it til- tilted to 45 degrees and there were crash mats around. So I would constantly come off it. But it was great. It felt very, very dangerous. Yeah. Uh, and it's a great metaphor because I think at that moment, in the story, Thorin is really on thin ice and it's breaking up beneath his feet and I think yeah. it's just a great image. And then you have a, a death scene to film with, with Martin Freeman. Yeah. Now, I, I imagine, I, I know he's the soul of professionalism. I also imagine that that's quite a weird thing to shoot and that you might have broken up a little bit at times. How do you mean broken up? As in, as in just breaking into laughter kind of thing? Never. No. Not for a single second. It was really weird because um, maybe maybe it was something about setting the tone that with that kind of scene, you just can't do that. It's it's like you. Ha- I stayed on the ground all day and and people left me alone. No one, no one kind of came in and did any checks. Um, Martin, it, it's weird because you know there will be one or two takes where it really kind of grabs your soul and you know martin had a a number of takes but i'd shot all of my stuff first so he'd really he'd really taken me to that point so i am then in responsible for making sure that he gets to that moment and uh you know we we just treat it with respect because it's it's one of the great characters dying and and strangely after after we played the scene and i i stood up I put a little cross on the ground because I just didn't want anyone walking over where he'd lain. And people, by the end of the day, people had come and laid flowers in this place. I mean, it sounds, you know, uh, schmaltzy now, but it, it people had a, that kind of respect. So That's weird. We we created a little grave for, for Thorin. In the book, he's buried with the Arkenstone. Did you film uh, that sequence? We did, yeah. yeah. I think it will be probably something for the extended cut. Um, again, a really, really beautiful, uh, probably a bit more of a noble, majestic scene. Mm. Um, but I, I didn't really miss it from the from the cut of the film. I think playing the the same beat twice, the de- in a way, it's dying twice. Yeah. Um, but I think it will make for a great, great ex- piece of extra on the on the extended edition. Fantastic. And uh, and the very last thing is, uh, how do you think people? Oh, how would you like people to remember Thorin? Because he's essentially the bad guy in this movie for the first. I, I'd like to remember I I will remember him and I would like audiences to remember him as he emerges from the mountain in that battle charge because I, I'd had that image of him in, in my head from the very beginning the moment where he leaps from the mountain and cries to me to me men and elves to me oh my what does he say oh my people um, yeah it was something that I'd you know imagined in my head and it's the moment in the movie that grabs me by the heart. Uh, one last time, Richard Tramadich. Until the next time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. And that's it. We're done. We're all off to, <laughs> to Google Boggs Cock. Uh, <laughs> see you next time. The podcasts are back on Friday. The next spoiler special of next year will probably be Fast and Furious 7. That's something to, that's something to look forward to, isn't it? Uh, until then. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>